So we're going to focus on the Rambam, stands for, again, Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon. Um, his Latin name is Maimonides, which means son of Maimon. Maimon was his father, Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon. For some reason, all the scholars for whom we call by acronyms, rather than just by calling them by name, we always add the, the Rambam. Why we do that, I don't know, but uh, that's the way Jews have always referred to him as the Rambam. So Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon was a 13th century Spanish-born rabbi who lived most of his life in Egypt. He was a doctor, a philosopher, an astronomer, most importantly, a Torah scholar and a Jewish leader. He was probably one of the most, definitely one of the most influential figures of his time, particularly among the Jewish community, despite living quite a distance from Europe where the largest Jewish communities were in the 13th century when he lived. Um, his works made a huge impact on Judaism, huge impact on history, and he is without a doubt one of the most important Jewish figures of all time. He is firstly one of the most easily identifiable, if you ask a Jew, to name ten famous Jewish historical figures. Um, I think the Maimonides would be one of those that most people are familiar with, um, although we may not m know much about him. Hopefully that will change soon. Um, but he is definitely one of the most important Jewish figures of all times. First, I'll tell you a little bit of his history, and then we'll get into why he is so important, what he achieved, his works. So he was born in 1135 on the eve of Passover, day before Passover, in the town of Cordoba in Spain. Now, for those familiar with early medieval history, um, Cordoba at the time was really, Cordoba was the name of Arabic Spain, which covered the southern half of Spain at the time, um, was called, the whole area was called Cordoba, and the city of Cordoba was the capital of Arabic Spain. It was the largest city in Europe in its time, larger than Constantinople, which was the second largest city. It, had, it was a city of more than a half a million people and um, including hundreds of thousands of Jews. So Jews made up a very large percentage of the size of this city. Um, it was a center of Arabic culture at a time when um, Arabic um, culture was um, during a golden age um, of um, Arab culture, uh, when there were centers of learning, astronomy, mathematics, universities, libraries, in large Arabic metropolitan cities across um, the Mediterranean, from Baghdad all the way to Cordoba. Cordoba was one of the great centers. It's also a center of Jewish life. So Maimonides grew up then. Um, um, he grew up then. His father's name was Maimon. His father was one of the rabbis of Cordoba. He served as a dayan, as a judge, on the Jewish court in Cordoba. And life for Jews in Cordoba, and really for Jews in southern Spain, came to a very, very abrupt end after hundreds of years of a thriving life where Jews had um, really great freedoms that we almost never had in other societies um, in Spain at the time, it came to a very, very abrupt end. In 1148, young Moshe, or Maimonides, was 13 years old at the time. Um, there was a group called the Al-Mohids. Um, they were, think of ISIS today. Generally, Arabs at the time were fairly... Um, tolerant, fairly open. They were big believers in science, in, um, in study, in um, knowledge, um, very tolerant of other religions, particularly of, of Jews. Um, but there was this fanatical Muslim group called the Al-Mohids that rose to power in what today is Morocco. Um, and in 1148, they, uh, they attacked Spain and the, what was then Span uh, Arabic Spain and they attack Cordoba in 1148. They capture Cordoba, and their policy was convert to Islam or die. Many Jews, many Jews, this was rare, by the way, for the Arabs. Um, till ISIS, from the days of the Almohads until ISIS, there was almost no other major group that has done that. So no other Muslim group. So it was, very, it was fairly unusual. So, but they, they destroyed Jewish life in southern Spain. Hundreds of thousands of Jews, some converted. Most were forced to flee. 
Many, many fled to northern Spain, where Jews lived under Christian rule, which was not as tolerant, but better than life in southern Spain. And that was the beginning of the huge Jewish communities in Aragon and in northern Spain, Barcelona and, and um, other um, major cities in northern Spain. Um, uh, Maimon, together with his family, Moshe, his son, and um, the rest of his family, fled southern Spain ahead of the Almohads. They went from town to town, city to city, um, and they really didn't stay in one place. They spent about 11 years wandering um, across southern Spain and Morocco, um, trying to flee persecution, until in 1159, they settled in Fez in Morocco. Now, Fez at the time was under Almohad rule. However, it appears for a period at least, they allowed important Jews or intelligent, intelligent Jews to settle there in Fez in Morocco. Some historians think that his family settled there by converting to Islam. The evidence doesn't support that. It appears that and he, doesn't, uh, he writes about conversions to Islam in detail, and he doesn't mention anywhere about his own experience. So it appears that he, um, he was openly Jewish at this time. Um, and this, at this time, Fez, although um, under control of this fanatical Muslim group, was still a center of learning. Um, a lot of great um, astronomers, um, famous doctors, uh, Arabic doctors. So Moshe at the time is now in his young 20s. Um, becomes a great, who's a great, he's a great scholar in Torah studies. He had studied mostly with his father, uh, who was a great scholar. He now studies medicine under some great Muslim um, medical experts and studies astronomy under Muslim scholars and philosophy during his time in Fez. Now during this period, he's in his 20s now, um, there's a Jew in Spain who begins publicly, we don't know his name, who begins publicly calling for all Jews who converted to Islam during the Almohad invasion to return to Judaism despite the dangers that, or punishment they may face because otherwise they will face terrible punishment by God if they do not immediately return to Judaism. And this Jew was going around, and he was apparently very popular, uh, encouraging Jews to risk death and everything to re-openly um, embrace Judaism. So Maimonides at the time, living in Fez, pens a very long letter. He's in his 20s where he proves from Jewish sources that God doesn't punish people who were forced to transgress Jewish law. If they did it under penalty of death or they were forced, um, God doesn't punish them. Well, we have a mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem, sanctifying God's name, to be prepared to give up one's life for God. While that is definitely a mitzvah and thousands of Jews have, um, however, somebody who did not give up their life for God and especially... Um, who has transgressed other commandments. They are not, God does not punish them. God understands the pressure that they're under. And um, he brings many sources and many stories in scripture um, of people who for, were forced to transgress and God forgave them for it. And while he encourages Jews to leave lands of oppression and move to lands where they could observe Judaism openly, um, he defends the Jews who, were, who had converted. His um, letter becomes very, very popular and it really was his first rise to fame as a young man. He becomes very, very famous for this letter, which, of course, we still have today. Um, it's known as Igeret Hashmad. The letter of Shmad is a um, Hebrew word and also Yiddish word that we use. It literally means destruction, but it is a word that we use for, dis for people that convert to, to outside of Judaism. We call it Shmad. In Yiddish, we had a term Shmadzich, somebody who converts outside of Judaism, we call it Shemad, so it's known as the Igeret HaShemad, the letter of Shemad, for those that, encouraging those who convert outside Judaism to, um, rather than disparaging them, encouraging them. Anyway, this time he also begins writing a commentary on the book of the Mishnah. The Mishnah was the most important book of our oral teachings. Our oral teachings were taught by Moses, um, when he gave us the written word, he also gave us these oral teachings, which were developed and evolved over the years. Um, they were written down for the first time by Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi around the year 200 in a book called the Mishnah. And then later, the, the um, writings of our oral teachings expanded dramatically, but the Mishnah remains the most basic book. The Talmud is a commentary on the Mishnah. So Maimonides now, um, Moshe ben Maimon writes a 
commentary on the Mishnah, begins writing a commentary on the Mishnah um, in Arabic. And his goal was really a commentary for lay people. Lay people should be able to study the oral teachings, study the Mishnah, which is a hard book. It's a cryptic book, a difficult book to read. And he took the commentary of the Tawan and many other commentaries and simplified it and wrote a commentary for lay people on the Mishnah in Arabic. In 1165, some six years after he had come to Fez, suddenly Jews in Fez were in danger again. Maimonides himself was almost killed. It's unclear if they were going to um, arrest him or he was arrested already. He was already a well-known figure at the time. And he was only saved last minute due to the intervention of a friend of his, an Arab poet friend of his, um, was able to intervene and save him. But his family was forced to flee Fez in the dead of the night and um, board ships. And their goal was to make it to the Holy Land, to make it to the land of Israel, which is, of course, every Jew's goal to make it to the Holy Land. Unknown to them, unknown to them, they arrive in the Holy Land. They arrive in Akko, which is just north of Haifa, the main port at the time. Unknown to them, the Holy Land had been invaded some um, uh, the couple decades earlier by crusaders, and for the last. Um, 70 years or so had been under constant battle between Arabs and Crusaders. And they come to the Holy Land, and while Akko has a sizable Jewish community, um, there really is no other community across um, Israel. They come to Jerusalem, which is under Crusade rule at the time. Jews are, they visit Jerusalem, but Jews are not allowed to settle there. They visit Hebron, Jews are not allowed to settle there either. And so they decide to move down to Egypt, which at the time had a thriving Jewish community in Cairo. So they moved to Cairo um, in 1166. Um, Rabbi Maimun, um, Maimonides, uh, the Rambam's father, dies in, uh, right when they arrive. And now the young 30-year-old um, or 28-year-old um, Moshe, sorry, 31-year-old Moshe, um, is already well-known around the world as a great scholar, um, scholar, a Jewish scholar, um, a scholar in medicine, astronomy, philosophy. Um, he's, he's already very, very well-known. Around this time, he completes and publishes his commentary on the Mishnah, um, this great commentary written in Arabic. It later gets translated into Hebrew for all the European Jews that didn't speak Arabic at the time. Um, he then follows that by writing a book on the 613 commandments. Now, we have an old Jewish tradition that God gave us 613 commandments. However, nowhere do we have a list of what those 613 commandments are. The Torah, there's a lot of do's and don'ts in the Torah. A lot of do's and don'ts. But how do you decide what counts as a commandment and what doesn't? What counts as one commandment? What counts as two commandments? What you should split into multiple or what should be merged together into a single? How do you define the number? How do you get to number 613? So there were a couple people prior to Maimonides that um, attempted to define what the 613 commandments were. Um, notably, um, a book called Halachot Gedolot, who... Um, we don't know who the author is, written about the 700s, and Rav Sajia Gaon did the same, and Rav Hai Gaon in the 900s and 1000s, respectively. Um, but this is uh, now the 1200s. Rabbi Mo, there's no extensive book explaining, <coughs> listing and explaining the 613 commandments. So first he this says that in order to explain, he was a very organized, as we'll see, a very structured thinker. In order to list the 613 commandments and decide what counts as a commandment and what doesn't, you need rules. So first he sets out a set of rules. How to know what is a commandment and what is not a commandment. What's one commandment, what's multiple commandments. How to split them, how to count them. And so he sets out a long list of rules. And then based on his rules, he lists the 613 commandments. And then he goes and explains every single commandment. It's biblical source, where we see the commandment, the basic laws of the commandment. Um, and so he talks a little bit about each commandment, and he writes this book, the Book of the Commandments, listing all 613, also in Arabic. He publishes this as well. He then secludes himself for 10 years to write his greatest work, the Mishneh Torah, which is a book, an encyclopedic work of Jewish law, which we'll talk about in detail soon. By now, he's very, very well known. Um, he's 
accepted as the, later as the official rabbi of the community in Cairo and effectively the rabbi of Egypt. By now, he's well known around the world. His books spread very quickly. And um, he, he responds with letters to uh, people send letters to him from around the world. Scholars send letters to him and he responds around the world. Throughout this time, he is full-time studying. He doesn't really work at all. He's supported by his brother David. His brother David, David, is a uh, merchant and established a very, very successful trade business bringing, um, mer bringing merchandise from India, which was across the Red Sea, down the Red Sea, across the Indian Ocean, um, which, uh, and then uh, bringing merchandise to Egypt and then sending it on. Very, very successful business. He's very wealthy. And so the Rambam is able to study um, without any, uh, and focus on his studies without any trouble. But this is, he arrives at Cairo in 1166. We don't know for how long he, um, he's going to die. His death is in 1204. So he's in Cairo for close to 40 years. Um, so <coughs> he comes as a young man in his, uh, at 31. He gets married in Cairo. He settles, spends 10 years writing his book. Um, at some point, we don't know exactly when. His brother um, is traveling to India or um, traveling from India with a large ship of merchandise. And he is shipwrecked or the ship um, is lost at storm. His brother is lost, dies. And so does the entire ship of merchandise in which their entire fortune had been invested. So now he's lost. The family has lost their entire fortune. And the um, family, um, both Rambam and his family and his brother's family, as a wife and children, um, are lo lost without a means of income. The Rambam refuses to take a salary from the community, although he was effectively serving as the community rabbi. He refused to take a salary from the community. He writes, uh, though he doesn't write about himself, he writes um, quite strongly about, um, so about not taking public funds, about um, supporting oneself with one's own work. And so he, has, he begins working as a doctor. So he has to take up time from his studies, begins working as a doctor. And he, um, soon his medical expertise becomes very famous. Um, he becomes, uh, and the emperor of Egypt, Saladin, um, who was well known as Egyptian conqueror, uh, Arabic conqueror, um, uh, makes him his personal physician. Now, though he became now the king's personal physician, he still did not give up his regular patients. And now he has both patients in um, Cairo, as well as being the personal physician of the king who was in a town next door called Fostat. And uh, on top of that, he was, also the, um, he was also the rabbi of the community. He also led a great yeshiva. He opened his own yeshiva, his own with many students. Um, he also was writing books, and he also was writing responses to communities around the world. Um, in one place, he writes his... Um, he writes about his day, why he doesn't have time, um, why, he's taking time why it takes him time to answer letters. He, said, he describes his day in great detail in one of his letters. He says he wakes up in the morning. Um, he goes to, he prays. He goes to the um, royal palace where he's there all day treating the royal family. Then in the afternoon, he comes back home where there's a long line of patients coming to, uh, waiting for him. Um, he sees all his patients. Um, then he eats his, after he sees all his patients, he eats his dinner. Um, he praises everything, evening services. He eats his dinner. And then he has his um, members of the community come in to leaders of the community to talk about communal affairs. And then um, he also, on, uh, on Shabbat, he um, teaches his students. And he goes into kind of great detail. He has no time to eat and sleep. He's busy full time. Yes, Doc? <coughs> Scholar of ours, revered scholar, is doing. 
That is an excellent question. Um, Annette, let's do a class on Egypt. That's a great topic for a class. No, let's just do Egypt. Egypt, Egypt's a great topic. Um, so, but in short, we Jews were persecuted and thrown out from one country to the next and had to escape and had to flee. We went wherever they took us in. So Egypt at the time under Saladin was very tolerant of Jews. Jews thrived. It was a great place for Jews. Egypt from that period was actually a great place for Jews until the 20th century. We had a large Sephardic community. And then in the 19th century, a large Ashkenazi community in Egypt, Jews fleeing Eastern Europe settled in Egypt. Very large Ashkenazi community there too. Um, it, was only after, um, it was only after World War I, really, after World War II, where things changed in Egypt for us. We but we had a good time in Egypt. We went wherever they took us. Because of Israel. That's why Egypt. Yes, we'll do a class on it. So. Anyway, a final book he writes towards the end of his life. Um, towards the end of his life, he wrote a um, book in Arabic called Guide to the Perplexed, which is a book of Jewish philosophy, very famous book. We dealt with it in a recent um, Wednesday class. And he died on the 20th of Tevet, which is today, um, in the year 1204 at the age of 68. He was buried, as was common. They took, did not bury him in Egypt, but took him to Israel to be buried. And he's buried. His grave is still there today in Tiberias. Hopefully, we'll visit it on our trip to Israel. So in a couple months. So Maimonides made a huge impact on Judaism in many, many ways. And I'm going to discuss a couple of the ways, now that you know his stories, um, or the Rambam, as we know, Jews know him, made a huge impact on Judaism. And we're going to discuss some of the important ways that he made an impact on Judaism. For one, he regularly exchanged letters with Jewish communities across the world who looked to him for guidance. Um, he was particularly revered in Yemen. Yemen is not that far from Egypt. Um, it's just a boat ride across the Red Sea. Um, and over there, the Jewish communities at the time, which were ancient, went back to um, Second Temple period. Um, Jews have lived in Yemen for over 2,000 years until 1948 when they were effectively all kicked out. I think there's less than a million there now. Um, but Jews lived there forever. Um, Jews generally did not live well in Yemen, struggled a lot. At this time, Jews during Maimonides' time, Jews in Yemen had a very, very hard time. And he's, his letters to Yemen greatly inspired the struggling communities. And he was considered a great hero in Yemen um, from then on. Yemenite Jews, of course, spoke Arabic and studied his original works in Arabic. And um, we lost some of the original Arabic of his works. And the Yemenite communities were the ones that preserved it. Um, he also had very close contact with Jews in Italy, Jews in Provence, where um, that had very Jews in Provence, which is southern France. Today they call it French Riviera. Then it was called Provence, it was his own, its own country. Um, we're very close with him. Um, particularly, um, there was a great Jewish city called Lonil, which is still there today in southern France. It's in the mountains. Um, and um, there, it was a great Jewish community, and they had a very unique relationship with Maimonides. Um, despite the distance, it's literally across the Mediterranean. Um, sending a letter there and back is a couple months. Uh, and he also had a close relationship with commu communities in Spain, which is where he came from. Now, most of his letters deal with Jewish law, with Torah, but he was also very influential, as we saw before from his letter, Gerrit Hashmad, um, acceptance of Jews who had left Judaism, especially under the Almochids, which had been um, a terrible um, uh, event in um, Jewish life at that time. Many Jews that were forced for a period to live, to live as Muslims um, and then later returned to Judaism. He was very supportive of them. He also was support, supportive of Karaites. Karaites were a group um, that rose in about the 700s that um, rejected traditional Judaism and had their own started by a fellow called Anan uh, in the 700s, and they had their own version of Judaism. There are a handful of them still left today. Um, in Egypt, there was a very large Karite community. There had been a lot of friction between the traditional Jews and the Karite community, um, and he encouraged them to embrace the Karites, not embrace Karite beliefs, 
but embraced the Karaites and encouraged them to return to traditional Judaism. Um, he also wrote strongly against false messiahs, of which there were a lot of, um, and other cult leaders that appeared in his days, particularly in Yemen and other places. Um, he deals with one that appeared in Baghdad. Um, but his greatest in influence on Judaism was more not inspirational, but more intellectual in philosophy and in halacha. So firstly, in philosophy. Maimonides wrote a very fundamental book in Jewish philosophy called Guide to the Perplexed. Um, Unlike his other books that are mostly written for lay people, this one is not written for lay people at all. Um, in fact, if you try to read it, um, if you don't have a very good grounding in Greek philosophy, uh, you'll have a lot of trouble with it. I can tell you that from experience. Um, it's un um, unlike, uh, so this was written for um, someone with a strong back background in Greek philosophy, but over there he goes through the basics of Jewish philosophy as he understood it, as well as he goes through different parts of our scripture. So he explains God, God creation, um, spirituality, angels, um, different spiritual things. He goes through different parts of the scripture, cryptic parts of the scripture, and explains what they all mean. It's a very, very interesting book of philosophy. Um, today it's easily available in English, but hard to read without a good commentary. Um, it's a hard, hard read. But perhaps his greatest contribution to Jewish philosophy was not in the Guide to the Perplexed, but in part of his commentary on the Mishnah. Um, as part of the Mishnah is a work of Jewish law, the first book of Jewish law. Um, it's, a, it's made up of six volumes, fairly thin volumes. Um, it's a lar large work overall, and he wrote an extensive commentary simplifying the Talmud and all of the commentary that had been written on the Mishnah over um, he lived over a thousand years after the original Mishnah was compiled. So over that past thousand years, he wrote a commentary putting it all together, writing for a lay person. One, all, almost all the books of the Mishnah deal with Jewish law. There's one book of the Mishnah, perhaps the most famous, that deals with Jewish ethics called Pirkei Avot, literally chapters of the fathers, um, but it's a book of Jewish ethics. And so in his commentary on the Mishnah, he also writes extensively on the Pirkei Avot, on the books of Jewish ethics. But in his introduction to the, his commentary on Pirkei Avot, this book of ethics, he writes a long introduction with eight chapters. And the book and the introduction has become almost its own book known as the eight chapters of Rambam. That's what it's called, the eight chapters. It's the introduction of the, his commentary on the book of ethics on Pirkei Avot. And over there, he goes through the basics of Judaism. So it's really great fundamental work on Judaism. Um, he also, um, so in that, in that fundamental work on Judaism, uh, he goes through the basic beliefs of Judaism. Now, we've always had, of course, basic beliefs of Judaism. And we've had also, before Maimonides, books of Jewish beliefs written. Uh, but nobody ever wrote the official tenets of Jewish faith. So, but he actually put together 13 basic principles of Jewish belief. And those 13 principles have been widely used and are still used today as the standard 13 principles of Jewish belief. There, was some, there were some variations. Other scholars say you shouldn't make it 13. You should count them differently. They didn't disagree with actual principles, just different ways of for, formatting and counting them. Um, some disagreed whether this is true, but it's not a basic principle. So there were variations, but the 13 principles of Maimonides are the standard. We have a number of poems in our prayers that are written. Um, most famous are the, the poem of Anima Amin, um, which is I Believe. Uh, you may have heard the term before, which is based, comes from a basic poem, a very famous poem that we say in our prayers, um, or many say in their prayers, that go through the 13 principles. We have another very famous poem, Yigdal Lokim Chai, which you may have heard of, um, which also goes through the 13 principles. So, um, so those are the, 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 we've integrated those 13 principles into many, many parts of Judaism. So what are the 13 principles? These are good to know. Um, maybe they deserve a class on them, their own right also, 13 principles of faith. <laughs> So number one is that <coughs> the creator, God, 
is the creator of all created things, and he alone made, makes, and will make all things. There is only one creator. Belief number one. One God. All creation. He made all of creation. The creator has made all of creation and nothing else. Number two is that there is nothing else like, not just that God, number one is God created everything, creates everything. Number two is that God is alone. There is nothing else other than God. There is no other creator, nothing else like him. He is, he was, and he always will be. He is alone. Um, monotheism, there is a single, absolute, infinite God and nothing else. Number three, this God, who is alone, there is nothing else, is incorporeal or has no um, physical, material properties. There is no likeness or no way to describe him whatsoever. Number four, God is eternal, always was, and always will be. Number five, um, God is the only one to whom we shall pray and ask for things. Uh, we should not pray to anyone else other than God. Number six is that all the words of our prophets are true. Number seven is that the prophecy of Moses is true and the we believe in all of the prophets because of Moses. Um, in other words, the Torah of Moses is the ultimate Torah. Number eight is that every word of the Torah as we possess it today is the original Torah as Moses gave it to us, and every word of it is true. Number nine um, is that the Torah has not changed, cannot change, will never change. God will never change the Torah. We mentioned this in our class about Christianity. Number 10, that God knows everything that we are doing, everything we are thinking, everything that happens. God is aware of everything. Number, <laughs> number 11 is, that God rewards those that follow his commandments and punish those who transgress his commandments. Number 12 is the belief in the coming of Moshiach. And this is not just a belief that he will come, that we will have a redeemer that will come and change, bring us back to the promised land, rebuild the temple and change the world as we know it um, to make uh, to make everything good, bring an end to all evil. Um, but not only do we believe it will happen, but we wait and anticipate it as well. Number 13 is a belief that there will come a future time where all of the dead will come back to life. So those are the 13 basic beliefs of Judaism. We will hopefully do a class on that. But very, so Maimonides was the one, those beliefs are all, all, were always part of Judaism. They all could be found in scripture, all could be found in detail in our oral teachings. But he was the one to codify it. His brilliance, perhaps we could say he was the greatest codifier of Judaism. He put it in a very organized fashion. While you could argue with how the structure of how he codified it, but it becomes a very organized, easy to use, easy to refer to fashion. They've been argued in some ways. In other words, they've both been argued. Um, a later scholar of Yosef Albo famously said, it's not really 13, it's really three that have many parts to it. Um, so you could structure it in different ways. Um, there's also been a debate whether certain tenets are fundamental to Judaism or are they just kind of, we have beliefs, but they may not be fundamental to Judaism. Um, so the, and had he defined fundamental to Judaism. So there has been, there's been debates. Um, there's actually a great book written by a recent scholar. Um, I forget the name of the book. Um, um, by his the author is Mark Shapiro about the 13 principles of faith and the different views of all the principles. Um, but there's also a great book uh, by um, Arya Kaplan on the 13 principles where he explains all of them in great detail. Um, so he organized the principles of faith 
and really explains the basics of Judaism in these eight chapters, very important chapters. In another introduction, also in this commentary on the Mishnah, he wrote at the very beginning of his commentary, he writes an introduction to each book, but he also writes an introduction, a very long introduction to the, his whole commentary. And in this introduction, he goes into a long, exp a long detailed account of how Judaism developed from Moses to his days. And in fact, we gave a course some time ago um, about how Judaism developed. And um, that course was based on his introduction to the Mishnah, where he explains in a very organized, structured way how Judaism developed. But his greatest achievement of all was the Mishnah Torah. Not only is it something that we could clearly consider his greatest achievement, he himself wrote that. He writes that that was his crowning achievement, was his writing of the Mishnah Torah that he spent 10 years writing. What was the Mishnah Torah? The book Mishnah Torah literally means the second Torah. The second Torah. In fact, it was... Um, Many Jews were even uncomfortable with the name Mishnah Torah, the second Torah, to the point that it's one of a number of famous Jewish works where the names are a little um, presumptuous, if you will. And therefore, we don't refer, Jews historically have not referred to them by their real name. We usually call it Yad HaChazakah, the strong hand. Why do we call it the strong hand? Because the Hebrew word hand, um, is Yad. Yad is also Yud Dalad, the number 14. In Hebrew, we have letter, we count by alphabet, by the alphabet. So it's the number 14. It's a 14 volume book. So that became known as the strong hand. And that's the term it's usually called by. Um, or it's just called Rambam. Um, we don't usually use the term Mishnah Torah, but that's its official term, the second Torah. So the oral Torah taught by Moses had been first written down in the work of the Mishnah, in the basic laws. Many laws that were not included in the Mishnah or were written in the Mishnah in very short were then written down in great detail in other works, Tosefta, Braita, Sifra, Sifri in the 200s, 300s. Then in the um, 300s, the Jerusalem Talmud, which was actually not written in Jerusalem but in Tiberias, um, the, um, but the, um, the Talmud written in Israel was written in the 300s, which is a lengthy <coughs> commentary on the Mishnah. Then what we call the Talmud, um, the Talmud that is um, the greatest work of Jewish teachings, was written in the 400s, um, late 400s in Babylon. Um, later, many scholars wrote commentaries and works and interpretations. And so since the writing of the Mishnah in 200, by the days of Maimonides in the 1200s, a thousand years later, there was a huge, huge body of work. Now, there had been a couple people that had tried over the years to write, simplify it, organize it, but in different ways. But there was nothing that was really an extensive organization of Jewish law. The Rambam decided that he was going to create an extensive encyclopedia of all of Jewish law, the entire work of Jewish law, taking from hundreds of books, dozens of books, probably in the hundreds by then, of Jewish books available in his days, putting them all, and a lot of them are not books of law, a lot of them are books of commentary, and taking the laws out of all of those books, and organizing it and structuring it in a very, very organized manner. And he put it together, he split it into 14 volumes, each volume another topic. Each volume was then subdivided into sets of what he called halachot, or sections, so by subject. Each section split by chapter, and split by paragraph. There's paragraphs, num paragraph numbers for every single uh, that he called halacha, uh, law, a uh, specific law. So he sp he split them by in a very very organized fashion, and he took the entire body of Jewish 
teachings until his day, and he made an encyclopedia of everything. He called it the second Torah, writing in his introduction, all you now need is the written Torah of Moses, and then you go straight to my work. You got everything you need. So it's an extensive work. Yes, Don? Excellent question. Haftorah. So, so he took everything together. He took everything together. It's good to ask. I just don't want to get on to, off the topic. So feel free to ask. So he took everything together. And just to get an, an idea today, when you write encyclopedias, firstly, Every encyclopedia, Wikipedia has tens of thousands of authors, but every encyclopedia, Britannica or World Book, they have hundreds of authors. It's a team that puts it together. Every encyclopedia built by teams. The way they do it today, everything's computerized. You could cut, you could paste. It's very easy, right? With word processing, it's very easy to make encyclopedias. The way they did it before they had computers, because they made, Britannica's around for quite a while. How did they make Britannica before they had it computers? They did it with index cards. <laughs> index cards. That's how you did it. That's how you organize things, right? So any, and any, not any encyclopedic work that organizes things does it like that. You do it with index cards. They hadn't invented index cards back then, right? It was all literally in his head. And he actually describes how he did it. He had to take, firstly, you have to know this body of Huge number of books. The Talmud itself, just the Talmud is 37 volumes. And large volumes where if you study, right, if you study the Talmud, it takes, in a cycle today, we do a page a day, it takes seven and a half years to finish. So you need to know not just the Talmud, but he has dozens of other works that he incorporates. So you've got to know it all, not just have studied it all, but how to have it all in your head and be able to then organize it all. So just to organize the structure, so he actually writes in his introduction to his book of the 613 commandments, he was afraid he would miss out details. So he didn't have index cards, but what he did have was commandments. He said, let me first figure out the 613 commandments, organize the 613 commandments then based on um, topic, which he does, and then once I have that, now I have all the topics and then write all the laws down, put all the laws together. He did all of this. It took him 10 years, but he put all of this together himself in a massive 14-volume book. So this is a huge achievement, amazing achievement. He wrote this book, unlike all the other books that he wrote, which were in Arabic, he wrote this book in Hebrew and it became the basic encyclopedia of Jewish law till this day. Nobody has written a book that is able to, uh, no one has written anything of that magnitude till today. Nobody has written anything like it, an encyclopedia of all of Jewish law. There's an organization in Israel that is working on a much larger, more extensive encyclopedia of Jewish law um, in Jerusalem. They've put out, they're only halfway through, and they've put out about 40 volumes. Um, so they're working very slowly. They started their project about 70 years ago. They were taken 70 so years ago. If this is a comprehensive encyclopedia of everything, then why do you need anything else? If That's a very good question. So, so when the Mishnah Torah spread, it was a great book. People loved it. It has everything in it. The ones who didn't like it was scholars. <laughs> scholars. Scholars didn't like it for a couple reasons. Firstly, there was one rabbi in province, Rabbi Avram ben Davin, known as the Rivad, who um, takes, saw the book and he disagreed with him. He said he got a lot of things wrong. That's not the right law. He, he, he disagreed with his interpretation of the law. Right? Every, when you come to a conclusion, you're, you, at times the law is not always clear and you've got to make your own interpretation to decide what the law should be. He believed that he wrote it, got it wrong. And so he wrote a book immediately in the Rambam's lifetime of all of the places where he disagrees with 
the, with, the, with the work. Even more so, though, scholars were very upset when they get the work. He wrote this great encyclopedia, but he missed out one crucial element. He didn't put any sources. Oh. Nothing was sourced. He actually wrote in a later letter at the very end of his life that his greatest regret in life was not sourcing. So scholars were very disappointed. So not long after Maimonides, a whole new genre of Jewish studies um, was created to source Maimonides' laws. What's the source? And many commentaries were written just providing sources for each of his laws. Many scholars, of course, disagreed with his laws. Well, then you've got to decide who to follow. Um, in, um, and, and then, um, of course, law evolves with time. New situations arises, arise. Maimonides' laws were... Um, written 800 years ago. A lot has changed in 800 years, all sorts of new situations. There's new questions that arose, new laws. And so the Jewish law has continued to evolve extensively in the 800 years since. Yet, and there were other important books on Jewish law and um, encyclopedias or um, organized works of Jewish law written since, perhaps most famously the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, However, even the Code of Jewish Law only wrote about practical laws relevant today. Maimonides wrote his book. He included all of Jewish law, including temple law, Israel, land of Israel-related law, uh, monarchy-related law, um, Sanhedrin High Council-related law. Every, he included everything in it. It was an extensive work of all of Judaism. So it remains the, still the most extensive work of all of Judaism, although it is still, it's a little outdated given that it is 800 years old. But it still remains the most important work. And today there are hundreds of works written as commentaries on Maimonides. There's actually a database, and I think it's available online, where you can get all, I think it's a couple hundred works of commentaries written on Maimonides' book, Mishnah Torah. Yes, Elise? Does he have a goal in doing this? I mean, what is Simplifying Judaism for the average layperson. Lay so you could open the book and you got the rules. And, and what kind of sources could he use? Would that tie into the whole oh, we know the books that he, we, we know the books that he had. Um, most of the sources, 95% of it's easy. 95% is easy. It's easy. We know where it, if you're a scholar and you know the books, you know where it is. It's the 5% that's hard. That's where the struggle is. Where did he get this from? Um, why did he read it this way? He should have read it that way. And that, that's where, it's, you know, it's, it's that, this, this parts that are controversial. That's where the scholars wrote their commentaries in great detail. What do you mean? What I mean is if he's going to sit and write it down, it's not enough. It has to get to the right, because for him to write it down so they can understand it, fine, but then they have to read it. They have to read it, absolutely. So there has to be some way to implement. Right, and that is my next point, which is, thank you very much, which is that today Maimonides is not the great best authority on practical Jewish law today because it's outdated. Um, it's quite outdated. We're 800 years in, and Jewish law has evolved for 800 years. But if you want to study Torah and you want to have an encyclopedic knowledge of Judaism, not for practical laws, just an encyclopedic knowledge of Judaism, it remains the one. He's an excellent writer, very clear and easy to read, and it remains the number one best book out there on understanding Judaism. And so 
I would encourage all, the beauty is that all the books of Maimonides today are readily available in English, of course. Um, all, they're available online as well. And in the last, in the 20th century, for Jewish lay people, there's been um, this movement towards cycles of study, which are very, very effective ways of, we've always had a cycle of study of the Torah, where we study the written word over the year, we have the weekly Torah portion, but there's been cycles of study created in other parts of the, uh, there's been a cycle of study created in the Talmud, but there are also cycles of study created to study the works of Maimonides. And two in particular that I would suggest, both of which are found in these books that we have available for your taking every week. They're also found online. Um, you could download the app and I'll think in some more details. So firstly, the 613 commandments. Want to learn and know the 613 commandments? There's a cycle of study to study the 613 commandments over the period of a year. So, or it's, it's just under 11 months, it goes through all 613 commandments. Uh, just under 12 months, it goes through all 613 commandments. So you can, for a year, study every single day. You study a little, couple commandments a day, um, and you end up going through all 613 commandments. That cycle of study is found in here. So I would encourage you to not only study the weekly Torah portion here, but study the daily mitzvah as well. Well, every week they publish seven days. A week. <laughs> the other cycle of study that I, well, every every they keep publishing new ones. The, um, the you could get this on on your phone too. Uh, you could pay for the app. Um, it's not very much. What's the app called? Chayenu, C H A Y E N U. Go to the app store. Let, let me just finish up. So the um, then the other the work of Maimonides itself is a much bigger endeavor. Um, and there's a cycle where studying Maimonides, the Mishnah Torah, one chapter a day, you will go through the entire book in three, the entire set, in three years. Now, a chapter a day is not easy. It's a commitment. Um, it will take you to study it properly. You've got to give yourself 20 minutes, half hour a day of focused reading, but it's also in this book, and I would strongly encourage you to do it. Um, or the other option, if you prefer more visual, it's also available online either in the Chayeno or um, if you go to our website, jccmv.com forward slash daily study, and you can bookmark it. Um, it has the daily mitzvah, it has the daily Torah reading, it has the daily Rambam as well. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't go one a day. It's more, it varies on the day, per day. But the chapters go one chapter every single day. Um, I would also encourage you, you'll see, there's a link on, if you go to jccmb.com forward slash daily study, you'll see a link over there to Rabbi Gordon Live. Rabbi Gordon was my uncle who passed two years ago. He lived in the valley. And um, 